0: We're just glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. I'd invite you to pray with me before we dig into God's word and see what he has to say for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be here on this Sunday to worship for everyone gathered in their homes or wherever they're at, around their TVs or their computer screens or their devices, Lord. uh, We just come to you and we confess that we are witnessing the world brought to its knees by a little virus not to be taken lightly and we pray we pray for those who've been exposed for those who are suffering right now its effects we pray for those who've lost loved ones to this deadly disease we pray that you would comfort them and encourage them we pray that you'd continue to give us as believers opportunities that we would seek and that we would seize every opportunity that we have to show the love of christ and to share the love of christ we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful truths out of your word and father as we dig into some really difficult topics lord this morning i ask that you would help us to discern your truth to allow the truth of your word to penetrate our hearts and i pray father that in my life that you'd continue to work these things out as you would in each of our lives. And for any who don't know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, we pray that they would see the glorious power of a risen Christ that enables us to live in ways that bring glory and honor to you and that are better and encouraging for our fellow man, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it's not a secret that we're currently in the midst of a global health crisis. But that global health crisis, and partly because of the steps that have been taken to mitigate the crisis, has resulted in and have resulted in what might be considered, well, it is an unemployment crisis, at least in the United States. Also, in an economic crisis. But while these things are looming large on our screen and on our minds and before us, let's not lose sight of the fact that we may be missing the boat, when it comes to another toxic crisis, a credibility crisis. Now, just think about it. You know, honesty, dishonesty, and deceit, I would say, are oftentimes not just tolerated, at least in America, and I think around the world, not just tolerated, but they're, they're often supported, they're often sanctioned, and in, sometimes they're even celebrated. I'm just reading this past week, and how the FBI intentionally deceived former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, trying to get him to lie, trying to get him to be fired from his job. I was thinking also this morning, I'm going to have to bend down here for a minute to get my prop, but uh, I brought with me this box of cereal. And uh, the brand is not that important. What it is is a box of cereal. Have you ever bought a box of cereal and then opened it up, and you go, okay, well, the box is this big, but... Here, here's how full it is. What's that about? Oh, well, yeah, we know. Some settling has occurred after packaging. Really? Half of the box settled to the bottom? That's why I used to like buying grape nuts. You know, when you buy grape nuts, the box is the size of the contents within it. You get the full deal. Deception is part and parcel of what we live with. So I would submit to you that Honesty is an endangered species. But honesty is not the only virtue in short supply these days. There's another thing that comes before us, and that is that we are really like to promote ourselves, and we see it in full view in light of this pandemic. We are obsessed with our rights. Identity politics is such a big thing in the world today that if you have an identity, even if you don't have, you can create one, and then you can advocate for your rights. We have women's rights, and we have children's rights, and we have minority rights, and we have you just fill in the blank for the rights, and we're promoting it. And I would submit to you that expanding and demanding our rights is merely a socially acceptable, a culturally acceptable way of serving ourselves to insist on our right to be sheltered from or either to retaliate against any insult to avenge ourselves of any offense when i think about that there's a whole movie industry a whole tv industry settled around a group of people who have the name what avengers So somehow we can advocate that we have the right to be avenged. And then to defy our oppressors seems to be our entitlement. And to resist sharing with others. These are the prevailing attitudes of society. But they're the very antithesis of the rare but precious commodities of honesty and selfless humility that should really characterize the people of God. Those who are godly. We've seen it. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. These are the qualities. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Oh, no. I would submit to you that not only is honesty an endangered virtue, but humility, and I will define it further as selflessness. Humility is not thinking less of myself it's thinking of myself less these are virtues that in the passage we're going to look at this morning in matthew chapter 5 verses 33 through 42 jesus calls us to pursue he calls us to protect he calls us to preserve he calls us to practice these endangered species these endangered virtues of honesty and humility so in matthew chapter 5 verses 33 through 42 jesus reveals two additional manifestations of the kingdom righteousness, manifestations of that character that we have been talking about as we started in Matthew chapter 5, and then specifically beginning with verse 21, that challenge us. These these virtues challenge believers, and they, they compel believers to a greater obedience, to live out more fully the righteousness that we have by virtue of our relationship with Christ, but also... I think they call unbelievers to repent. So if you have your Bible, your device, your phone, app, whatever, please turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 33. I'm going to read through verse 42. And again you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His the footstool for his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no. And anything beyond this is of evil. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone wants to sue you, take and take your shirt. Let him have your cloak also. And whoever shall force you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Wow. Definitely difficult passage to work our way through, but some very, very challenging and insightful things for us to live by, because this is what Jesus calls us to, I want you to look first of all at the first of these manifestations of kingdom righteousness. Our righteousness consistently declares the truth, I think is the main emphasis in verses 33 through 37. And Jesus takes two steps to demonstrate that honesty is a kingdom virtue. First of all, he condemns a perverted perspective of honesty, and that he does by explaining and stating to us what the law said. First consider, I'm going to read verse 33 again, he says, and again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Think with me, if you will, first of all, the the purpose of what the ancients were told. Why is it that they were told you shall not make false vows? Well, this is a quote, a compilation of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 12 and Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 and several passages in Deuteronomy what was a vow what was an oath well a vow or an oath was simply to invoke the name of God as a witness attesting to the truthfulness of a statement or a prediction or a promise I'm going to take you to a couple of passages of Scripture that will be on the screen. First of all, I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, that it says, For men, the writer says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end to every dispute. That's the purpose of an oath. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, verses two, and three, uh, we, we also see where the, the scripture tells us about oaths, okay? So we know that we're supposed to have these oaths that are, that are okay. I'm going to just go ahead and read Genesis chapter 24, um, beginning with verse 2 and verse 3, okay? It says this, and Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh and I shall make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Okay? So these are oaths, a promise made. The law law of oaths served to curtail our human tendency to tell a lie. I was once in a relationship with a guy who was a man from the, the town that I lived in. And I had spent a lot of time and another guy in our church. And we'd been sharing with him, inviting this guy to come to church, talking to him about the gospel. And he actually promised me that if I could get him a job, he would come to church. And so I talked to one of the guys in the church and I said, would you be willing to hire this guy, you know, for, for a job? said if you'd hire him, said if we could get him a job, he'd come to church. He didn't. He got the job, but he didn't come to church. He made a promise, but we have this tendency. So oaths were given, and the oaths were supposed to be sworn in the name of the Lord, and the name of the Lord was not to be taken in vain. We know this from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. We're not supposed to be taken frivolously, and a vow that was uttered should absolutely be fulfilled, Okay, should not be broken. So what happened? Well, that was the purpose of an oath, but the purpose got perverted. So consider with me the perversion of oath-making by the rabbinical tradition, because the rabbinical tradition imposed a legalistic interpretation. And they permitted, and they not only permitted, but they promoted deception for selfish gain. See, Leviticus 19.12 says, and you shall not swear falsely by my name. Oh, okay, so how can we legalistically twist that so we can promote and also permit deception for our own selfish gain. Well, all you have to do is say an oath that must be given in the name of the Lord, specifically in the Lord's name, and then it's binding. But if you give an oath without the Lord's name, then you can escape that. And so they said only oaths invoking God's name directly were binding. And so to prevent taking the Lord's name in vain, to prevent... Uh, swearing by the Lord and then not fulfilling it, what they did was they used surrogate objects to swear on behalf of. And that's why we see in the text, they swore by heaven, they swore by earth, uh, they swore by Jerusalem, they swore by their head. These were surrogates that weren't binding, but it gave the appearance of sincerity. They reasoned that it was fine to deceive with the appearance of sincerity by swearing something other than by God's name. So the intent of the law, which was to ensure truthfulness and compliance with the law, was completely reversed. So if you're a really smart person, really cunning person and deceptive person and dishonest person, you could utter non-binding oaths and take advantage of the unsuspecting. Well, is that a new concept? No. It's an old concept, but it's prevalent today as well. People give the appearance of truthfulness as, they, as a means of deceiving others. I remember sitting in my study at one point and a man that I was writing a check to for an investment. And I said, now look, I'm a pastor. You, you're going to sit here and tell me as a pastor of the gospel that this is, this is a sound deal. Well, he was absolutely sincere in his deception. It was a fraud. It was a fake. He was deceptive in his assurance, but he was absolutely sincere, and that happens today. So, that is this idea that that he condemns this perverted sense of honesty, and so then he moves on, secondly, in verses 34 through 37, and he commends a pure practice of honesty. And from two perspectives, I'm going to talk first about the negative approach and then he talks about it positively and the negative takes up most of this section but negatively we're to avoid now notice the text says oaths completely all oaths I put a question mark there because that's what he says if you look at, at verse 34 but I say to you make no oath at all I would like to submit to you that all through this text there is the use of exaggerated language of hyperbole for the sake of emphasis. And I think that's being used here because I don't believe that Jesus is saying you should never make an oath, period. He's not contradicting the law. He came to fulfill the law. He said that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. But he calls us back to the original intent whereby oaths were to be given in God's name on rare occasions to ensure the truthfulness and obedience. What I think Jesus is doing is trying to get rid of all these frivolous, everyday, oh, I swear by this, I swear by that, deceptions that were taking place, that were manipulative in everyday conversation, that were either to impress people or to deceive people. And I, and I base my statements basically on this. The Old Testament taught about oral oaths, that, we sh- that they were to be given. This is the law of God. Scripture Often, I, I took you to, I'll take you to you go to Genesis 14, verses 22 through 24, or Genesis 24, all through the book of Genesis. And then Paul practiced and talked about oath-giving in Romans chapter 9. Jesus even mentions it and actually was, I guess, took part in oath-giving in Matthew chapter 26. He says, I adjure you by the living God, the, the leader said. I adjure you by the living Are you the Christ? Well, that's asking him to take an oath. And so I don't think Jesus here is asking for a ban on all oaths. Jesus' prohibition seeks to expose the hypocrisy and flippant oath-making. Look at verses 34 through 36. But I say to you, make it no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What's that about? Well, he's he's referring and trying to say that these other things they were swearing by instead of by using the name of God were in actuality, they were trying to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, but they were really actually uttering binding oaths because they were actually appealing to that which God controlled. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 1, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. So if you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God, which he's in charge of. If you swear by the earth, that's his footstool. Who of us can't... Jerusalem, that's the city of the great king of God himself. I can't make a hair white or black. It's God who's in control. So basically, they had unknowingly sworn by God himself. Their non-binding oaths were actually binding. They were making false vows. They were actually taking his name in vain. By failing to fulfill the oaths. They were guilty of the very offense that they were seeking cleverly to avoid in their deception. That's the negative. Now, look at the positive. Verse 37. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. This is the point I think Jesus is driving to in the text. It's a call for truthfulness in our everyday lives. No clever words of uh, of ours could hide the truth from God this morning as I was praying and as I was reviewing actually not as I was praying but as I was reviewing things for this morning and uh, to share I was looking out my window and there was an owl perched on a broken off uh, trunk of a tree and that owl's head is on a swivel and everyone who walked down the the path by in front of that aisle, was in his purview. He could see it. He knew what was going on. Nothing was taking him by surprise. God is aware of all that we speak, and he's saying here, Jesus is saying that God's standard is absolute, absolute truthfulness in every word that we utter. Anything beyond the truth is of evil. It's sourced in evil. You know, the, the Washington Post, I guess, has, a, has posted a video that suggesting that COVID, uh, the, the disease, COVID-19, didn't come from a lab or that it didn't come from this city in China, which I, th- I think it's pretty much universally accepted that it did, okay? So it, it was false. But isn't it amazing in the culture in which we live, the verbal gymnastics we go to to try to avoid this idea that people actually lie? Well... We talk about misrepresenting the facts or that something was a falsehood or it was an untruth or that it was patently untrue or that it was a fabrication. No, it's a bold-faced lie. And the question for us this morning, I think, is where in my relationships am I less than truthful? Truthful. In my relationship, if I'm married with my spouse, am I totally truthful? Oh honey, did you happen to get this done? Uh, well yeah, uh uh-huh when you didn't, you know, but you're going to now, because you've been reminded of it. Or, you know, and ladies, you put us in an awkward spot. Well, how do I look? You know, how's my hair? Do you like my hair? And then some guys aren't totally truthful, and but sometimes we need to be. In our relationships. With our teachers now, many of you students, that's you have online teachers. Some of you, but some of you have homeschool teachers. Now it's your parents. Did you get your homework done? Well, did you or did you not? Or is it partially done or fully done? Or do we just tell little stretches? Well, yeah, I, I I'm pretty much done. No, we say, yeah, I got it done. When you didn't get it done, have you been spending time in the Word of God? Our parents might ask. Oh, yeah. Well, what did you read? I can't remember because you didn't read anything or maybe you didn't remember. We have this tendency to be deceptive. I was on the phone yesterday with my mom and it was like she asked me a question and I found myself not wanting to tell her the whole truth. You know, well, she might find out that I spent time with my grandson or something and uh, what is that about? Listen. God says, at home, at school, at work, in our communi- community, am I truthful or am I just trying to be tricky, trying to deceive people? You know, are we all trying to be that, quote-unquote, vacuum cleaner salesman in our relationships with people? One of the things that struck me was oftentimes when people come into my study, uh, they'll look around at the bookshelves and they'll say to me, they'll say, oh, Pastor Steve, have you, have you read all these books? Well, what do you think the pressure is? The pressure that I feel is that I should say, yes, I, oh, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a master of the, no, that's a lie. I say, no, I haven't read them all. I've read some of them all the way through and some of them part of the way through, but I haven't read all of them, you know, or I just say, no, I've read all or parts of most of them, which that I think would be true. So our righteousness, first of all, Jesus says, consistently declares the truth. Then he moves on from that, which is a difficult thing for us to see the subtleties in which we are trying to be deceptive and move away from those, to this second manifestation of kingdom righteousness, which is our righteousness continually denies self. And we see this in verses 38 through 42. And Jesus presents two contrasting ideas to prove that selflessness in the face of evil, is the true mark of righteousness. And this text is way more difficult to implement and live, as all of it is, which is just very difficult to live. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus communicates the standard response to evil, which is vengeance, okay? That's our default when we come in conflicted with evil when evil comes upon us and he said this is the quote from the old testament you have heard it said verse 38 you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth now this section is probably one of the most misunderstood sections of the sermon on the mount an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is is the direct quote from several passages exodus chapter 21 verse 24 leviticus 24 Verse 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21. And the concern here, when it was written and the essence of it in the law, is the, that the punishment would fit the crime. The law served two purposes. It was to deter sinfulness or to deter crime. So you have a law that's to deter crime. Secondly, this law was given to prevent... Now, you, I didn't think about it this way until I studied this. To prevent excessive revenge. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's generally true that in the United States and all around the world, what we do is we want a pound of punishment for an ounce of offense. In other words, we want the punishment to exceed the offense. Well, think about it. In January of 2020, CNN settled out of court for an undisclosed amount with this Covington Catholic student, Nicholas Sandman. Nicholas Sandman and his lawyers sued CNN. The lawsuit stated it was for $275 million. They settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. And there are other lawsuits pending with other media outlets seems to me that we are asking for excess. Some of you remember the court case when McDonald's was sued because some lady put hot coffee and she burned herself with hot coffee and she sued them like that, that was their, their problem. Well, there's a lot of details to that. They, they knowingly were making the coffee hotter than they should have been, a lot, of, a lot of stuff. But there were millions and millions of dollars that were at stake and this is routine. The Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, took vengeance out of the hands of the people, the individual, and it gave it to the courts. But here's what happened. The Jewish tradition, in contrast to what the law taught, had returned the application of retribution back to the individual, which provided a personal license for revenge. So that's why Jesus says, the law says this, but I say to you. So he, then he moves from telling them exactly what the standard response would be to now in verses 39 and 42. He commends a superior response to evil people, which is patient endurance. Patient endurance. But I say unto you, Some of you have little children. If you had little children and perhaps maybe you're an aunt or an uncle or a babysitter, a child care provider was watching them while you were with your wife on a date, you come home and the the children say, well, you know, uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or the child care provider said, we could stay up late. And you walk in and either parent you say, but I say unto you, you're going to bed now. And Jesus is in contrast with what the law said, not in conflict with what the law said, but actually explicating the intent of the law. Rather than retaliation in personal disputes, Jesus advocates for gracious endurance, excessive kindness, and complete selflessness. Do not resist him who is evil. This is in a personal offense. Don't resist See, there the scribes and Pharisees was the insistence upon their personal rights and upon vengeance. But the righteousness of the kingdom, as Jesus articulates it, is the complete opposite. Jesus forbids retaliation in a, when we're dealing with personal issues, personal relationships. But I don't believe that he's teaching total pacifism. I don't believe that he's teaching we should never resist anything, that we should never be opposed to anything, that we should just be milk toast and doormats and walked over. But if it's a personal issue, more likely than not, we should not fight it, but we should endure it. Now, look, look into this Jesus resisted evil in the temple. Was it not Jesus who cast out the money changers? Matthew chapter 21. We are commanded to resist the devil in James chapter 4. In the church, we resist sin and sinful people in the church. That's Matthew chapter 18. So, in society... We, are, we have laws, and we have a government, and the reason we have a government is to punish those who are evil. This is Romans chapter 13. So it's not that there should never be any resistance to evil, but Jesus uses the hyperbole here, and he uses it. And his use of it shouldn't, shouldn't be taken literally. I don't think Jesus is saying literally that we should give everything we have to everyone who asks whenever they ask it. I don't think he's saying that we should be beat up, that literally we should just stand there while we just get beat to a pulp. He's using hyperbole. It should not be applied literally, but it doesn't dilute our responsibility to be enduring, to be kind, and to be overly generous. Keener, in his commentary, described Jesus' words as rhetorical overstatements. And he says these rhetorical overstatements, they're designed... I, I would say they're designed to help us evaluate our priorities. Okay. How do I feel when I'm insulted? When there's injustice? When there's injury? When I'm being asked to balance an inequity? They're, they're supposed to expose our innate selfishness. Oh, Lord, yeah, I guess I'm more selfish than I want. And encourage us to value, as Keener says, concrete others in concrete and consistent ways. So the call is to Exercise and selfishness that leaves us in God's hands, trusting Him. And I'm saying this, folks, as a a person who struggles, I struggle with some of these things. Because the the fallen nature within doesn't really like to be slapped on the cheek. Doesn't like to be made fun of or, or give over. So here's the deal. Jesus is saying our pride, our possessions, our perspectives are not more important than His honor. And his honor and his glory is more important than my selfish pettiness. And so in my response, I'm supposed to portray the love of God in a way that's alien to the world, but characterizes someone who has my eyes fixed on the prize, fixed on eternity for God. He gives four specific examples, and I would be careful to say that these illustrate, but they don't legislate, what it means to crucify ourselves. In relationship to our rights, when there's evil at stake, they illustrate, but they don't legislate. So, this is not like, okay, we have to follow this to the letter. So, I, I heard of somebody say, and we'll, we'll look at the first one it says, Our response to insult is further indulgence. That's my suggestion that it's further indulgence, okay? Our response to the uh, in insult is further indulgence, okay? Whoever slaps you, the text says, well, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. To be slapped is, is the greatest indignity. It's the greatest insult to be backhanded in the face. And the point is that when we suffer this humiliation, when we suffer an insult, not that we're literally slapped, maybe we are slapped, but when we're, it's not like we're beat up. It's just that you're slapped and insulted. It might be a cutting remark. It might be a criticism about your work It might be a demeaning look. It might be somebody who's snippy, who's uh, supposed to be your friend, who turns out to be uh, somebody who undercuts you, who's criticizing you. Somebody who's at work and they're badmouthing you to the boss, but they're being nice to you, they they insult you. What is our response? We're to turn the other cheek. Our willingness to suffer further indignity, that's the idea. Okay, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to suffer further indignity. It manifests the non-retaliation of Jesus' selfless humility, which we are to exemplify. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. He who was perfect, he was reviled, yet he did not revile in return. He went to the cross and suffered this greatest indignity as a person who is innocent. And we're to follow his example. It says in the text of 1 Peter that we have been given this as an example for us to follow. Oh, wow. Really? What does that look like? I read a story once about a missionary in a Muslim country. And the brother was up preaching on the streets. And as he was preaching, one of the, one of the locals told their son to go spit on him. So the son came up in the great indignity of spitting on this man and then another boy came up and spit on the man and then another one and then another one until his shirt was absolutely soaked with the spit of those who were deriding him and insulting him and there was a religious leader a haji who was there uh, that was there and who said to him he said oh dear so-and-so and and i'm not going to use the man's name he said oh, that you would become as we are, to become of our faith, become a Muslim. And the man said, why would I do that if it meant that I would treat another person the way that I've been treated? And then, in humility, the man recognized it and said, oh, if it weren't for my deep convictions and my family, I probably would become as you are and become a Christian. Wow. Wow. On another occasion, there was a man who was preaching on the, on the street corners and, and uh, somebody came up, a young boy came up in those third world countries and took some camel dung and shoved it right into his mouth. And he spit it out and he rinsed it out and he kept on preaching out of his love for Christ. Now those are examples that just blow my mind. When I think about it. But I think about what's our response when someone insults us? They insult your work. They insult your family. Maybe they insult you because you're a single person. Maybe they insult you because you're a married person. Maybe it's because you're an old person. A retaliation. I'm going to get even with them. Or if we go back a few Sundays, is my mind running, Raka! I'm calling them a fool. I'm angry and frustrated in their mind. Or am I going to be like Jesus and what he calls us to, to do? Turn the other cheek. You see, we're supposed to defend the orphans. We're supposed to defend the widows. It's okay to defend ourselves against crazy people, against violent uh, uh, people who come in, break into our house, or or who treat us. That's okay. I think we can defend ourselves in those cases. But when it comes to being insulted, we are supposed to endure, choose to endure further insults, because honoring God is more important than my honor. The second example we see is in verse forty, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. An interesting statement it would be a legitimate lawsuit. They would be something that 's not a frivolous lawsuit. this is something that would be legally necessary or necessary, but allowed okay they would be, and in their culture, to take the shirt was compensation. interesting that they had a cap on their uh, liability, okay? But to take the cloak, which for often peop- times people, that's what they slept with at night. It would keep them warm in the desert. The law actually forbade that that be given. You didn't have to give it. No, the cloak could not legally be demanded. So Jesus, in a radical statement, requires them to give what the law would allow them to keep. Again, it's an overstatement. It's a hyperbole. It's a statement given to make us think about being not hoarding, but actually that when we are injured, that we would be excessively kind, even to the people who injure us. The righteous are selfless to the point of even being wronged. Isn't this what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6? Why not rather be defrauded? Oh, really? I mean, that really runs counter to our, our, our nature to be defrauded. And, and and righteous people, the righteousness of the kingdom, is willing to go overboard to satisfy, to encourage even the people who are bringing evil against us. I, I know a man in, a, in an estate settlement where there was some property, and the property was valued at a certain amount. And this this man and had, you know, had other family members involved, and, it was, and, and the, this man was to receive this portion of property valued at this amount. What that person did was he paid the rest of the family more than the assessed value. He went above and beyond. All that could be required was the assessed value, but he gave more than the assessed value. That's what it means to model a response to injury that gives more than what's sought. Thirdly, a response to injustice is to go further than asked. If you look at verse 41, it says, "And whoever forces you to go to one mile, go with them too." I don't know about you, but I've read that passage I go, that's kind of weird. What does that mean? I mean, ask me to go, forces me to go a mile. Well, in their culture, In the first century, a Roman soldier was within his rights to demand of any citizen that that citizen carry his supplies and that they could carry their gear for a mile. This represents, I think, and I think others think, it's humiliating. It's really inconvenient. You know, you may be on your way to work and the soldier says, hey, I need you to carry my stuff. And it's absolutely an unjust form of servitude. And Jesus advocates for a love that not only meets but exceeds what's asked. Go beyond it. Go beyond it. It reminds me of a story of a Romanian pastor during the Cold War when the, the communists were taking over and trying to suppress religious freedom in Romania. And this pastor was in his home and the police came to his home and they were barged in and they started taking his books from his library. And if you're a pastor or if you're a person who values books, this was his most precious possession. And he started, they started boxing it up and started taking it out because they were going to go burn it. So what is the response of the pastor? He says to his wife, dear wife, Would you please go make some tea for these young men so that they can join us for some tea when they're done with their task? I went, what? Why would you not be standing up and screaming or or fighting or arguing or trying to grab a hold of the books or whatever? No, no, let's get some tea and give it to these guys. And so in the face of this injustice, he was willing to give more than what was asked. I don't know about you, but the natural response is a resent submission. <laughs> and never do we see that more than in the United States right now under the COVID lockdown. Okay. I thought about uh, Dallas salon owner, Shelley Luther. She's defying the order. She's got her place open for business and you just come and get me. You know, I'm going to be arrested. Now, I'm not trying to make any political statements and I'm not sure how I would respond. The point is that... We don't like to be told what to do. Death to self means that we comply, even with unpopular stuff. Even as churches, we have been very careful. Our leadership has been gracious and kind, and I am very grateful for our governor, who has, has given more relaxed Implementation of things. But when we were incomplete, you know, weren't supposed to meet at all. We could meet now if we wanted to. We're just not ready to do that and we don't think it's best right now. But we weren't defying it. We weren't saying, oh no, you can't. We we're gonna we got our rights, we're gonna do it. So this is the thing. If we choose, now I'm not saying we can never choose re- resistance, because I don't think Jesus is giving us a legalistic Rules to follow that we have to do it this way. He's giving us a challenge to say, Look, when you're personally asked and in suffer injustice, give more than is asked of you. But there are times the choose resistance, and if we do the opposition to it, and our should not come from merely personal offense, it should not be in pursuit of my own convenience. Oh no, there are times when I have to defend the widows and the orphans and I have to defend other things that God has called us to defend and proclaim. But it's not just for my own personal benefit. No, Jesus is calling his followers to respond to evil persons with love and kindness. It's the the workers at a crisis pregnancy center taking food out to the pro-abortionists who are picketing on the street that's the kind of thing that Jesus is calling us to and finally the fourth one is our response to inequity is to give what is needed now I could go into a great length of detail but in the culture of the Middle East those who were there was a high value on an obligation to give to those who ask and there was a high moral value on on work so in this context, the people who would be asking for you to give them something or to borrow something from you were truly needy people. The righteous, I think according to this text, don't resent, but they rejoice in the opportunity to help those less privileged than themselves, to help the needy. It's not a legalistic or literal call to give everything or anything to anybody who asks you or to loan anything to anybody. You know, I I had some people that I know they say well I need to borrow your car you know I could I could I need to borrow your car because I was irresponsible and let my car break down and didn't save any money and now I want to borrow your best car and and abuse it no this is not what Jesus is talking about here he's not talking about us giving in to scam artists he's not talking about us you know supplying professional beggars but hey there are a lot of legitimately needy people and the heart of God is to care for them. We're supposed to care for the needy, for the widows, the orphans, and the poor. And so the challenge is that not to resent it, but to take opportunities. Self-denial translates into generosity on behalf of them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his work, said, it's not easy to spend a week in this text because it's what Jesus expects of us. It's what God expects of us. You may be listening this morning and you're maybe not a follower of Jesus. You're just maybe interested in the things of God or not, just checking it out. I would submit to you that it really looked like evil was triumphing at the cross when Jesus was crucified. But in the resurrection, Jesus did conquer evil. He vanquished evil. In fact, the text of 1 Peter says he, that is Jesus, who was the the just died for us who are the unjust that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's a love that God has for you and I as naturally evil people. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the debt that we deserved so that if we trust in him, we could be freed and we could be liberated not only from the penalty of doing evil, which is death and eternity from God, but also the power of evil, so that the righteousness of Christ could be imputed to us by faith, and then we could live out more consistently that righteousness by faith. It's undeserved love that was poured out for you, and I just invite you to receive that love as a gift that God has given to you, and you just need to express your brokenness, that you are headed apart from God, that you turn in your own way, and that you want to trust what Jesus did as the payment for your sins so that you are no longer a slave to evil and you're no longer subject to the ultimate consequence of evil, which is separation from God. For those of you and those of us who are believers, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is a commentary, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, the cross is the only power in the world which proves that, un, that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. The cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish, vanquish evil. You see, the cross is the only ground for, for me being honest. It's the only ground for me having a chance to be selflessly Humble. Through faith in Christ, we who join with Christ by faith triumph with him over evil, over evil's punishment, which is death, and over its power, which propels us to be dishonest, propels us to be always selfish. And we gain the power of Christ to share in his sufferings. Paul said in in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Washington chapter 1, Paul says I have to, we have to fill up that which is lacking in his sufferings. Do you understand that as believers, we are joining with Jesus in this suffering unjustly, and our response to it is to follow the Lord who did so without reviling, or reviling and return to entrust ourselves to God who judges righteously. And that requires total dependence on God and faith in Him. And we do so as we anticipate that ultimately, will be with him in glory and there will be no more injustice and we'll be vanquished and vindicated. Evil will be vanquished and we will be vindicated. And so I, I come to the end of this text and I just say to myself and I ask you to maybe spend some time this week praying. Father, where am I maybe appearing more honest than I really am? Would you, would you please expose the dishonesty in my relationships with my spouse, with my employer? You know, many of you are working at home now, right? Oh, full day's work for a full day's wage? Well, maybe not so much. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I struggle with it, you know. The, who's watching you? <laughs> God. Father, show me in my relationships with my neighbors Am I really trying to act better than I really am in my relationships with my friends, in my family? Am I being totally dishonest? Does my response to insult, does my response to injury, does my response to injustice, does my response to inequity reveal a heart that's more demanding of my rights or, Father, make me more denying of myself? You know, when we break bread and we drink the cup, we remind ourselves that Christ's suffering, His suffering love triumphs over evil. It proves that suffering love avenges and vanquishes evil to everyone and for everyone who believes. And and we possess this righteousness, even though it's imperfectly fleshed out among us or incarnated. And, And the cross also empowers us to live righteously it teaches us how we should behave that's what jesus is doing here and so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to take a a moment or two i'm gonna take bread and i'm gonna i'm gonna after i pray and and i'm gonna break it and i'm gonna take it of my for myself and i'm gonna invite you to do the same at home and if you choose not to do it right now there'll be a song that's played and you can just examine your heart during this song and and reflect on the fact that the righteousness of Christ, the death of Christ, is the power of God that enables us to experience this righteousness and to express it. And then you just take those elements at home. And then at the end of that song, I'm going to come back and I'm going to pray and close our service. And so right now, I just want to thank you, Lord, for the bread, uh, the bread that is broken, that is a reminder of your body that's broken and the cup, and the cup that was Represents your blood that was shed for us. And it is the only power, Father. The power of suffering love. That would vanquish evil. That would avenge ourselves of it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we take these elements. To remember what you've done for us on the cross. And that we would draw upon your power to live as honest people. A see humble people. Lord, I just know in my own heart, when I'm injured, when I'm insulted, when I experience injustice, my default is to go lash out and to defend and to fight like a cornered badger. Lord Jesus, help us all, myself included, to rely upon you, to de- default to depending upon you when it's personal injury, but also to have wisdom and discernment, Lord, when we need to come to the aid and defend. Religious liberty, truth, justice, the, the the plight of the unborn, the plight of the poor and the widows. Father, we take this bread, I take this cup. In your name, I pray, amen. Well, it's so good to have you join with us this morning for worship. I trust that these truths would continue to wash over your soul as I'm asking the Lord to do in my life because I know that, boy, living these things out is true. It is a very difficult passage and often misunderstood and misapplied. I pray by God's grace you would continue to press ahead that we would allow the Lord to work in our hearts for his glory and the gain of his kingdom. We just uh, thank you for worshiping. I'm going to close in prayer and wish you the best for this day. Father, thanks so much for these challenging truths in the book of your word from the Sermon on the Mount. I pray, dear Father, that the character of the kingdom would more consistently be lived out in our lives as we surrender by your spirit to your word and live in obedience, God help us each to see the blind spots in our lives, whether it's the anger that's there, whether it's the adulterous thoughts, whether it's the rebellion in our hearts, whether it is the fact that we are dishonest or the fact that we just are resistant to being hurt and injured and wounded ourselves. Give us grace to press ahead for your glory and the gain of your kingdom, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Lord bless you and have a great day.